morning, everybody. It is lovely to see you. It's so exciting to welcome new members into our family. I hope you've been uh, enjoying and being blessed by this Jesus Is series. I've loved just taking this season to focus in on who Jesus is, to behold him afresh, and to respond in light of that. And today we're going to look at a key element of Jesus' identity. We're going to look at Jesus is the Christ. And actually we're going to find Jesus is an unexpected Christ. You see, at the time of Jesus, people were waiting for the Christ. They were expecting him. They were waiting for him to come, but they weren't expecting him to be like Jesus was. When Jesus arrived, he was an unexpected Christ. He was Christ in an unexpected way. When Jesus arrived, he wasn't quite what people thought was going to come. He wasn't quite what people expected. And as I was musing on that this week, my mind wandered, as I confess it sometimes does, when I'm writing a sermon. And it made me think of some of those stories of unexpected deliveries people get. You come across these, these online shopping disasters where people have ordered one thing, they're expecting one thing, but when it arrives, it isn't quite as expected. Often that's about size. People think they found an amazing deal, and when the thing actually arrives, they realize the deal wasn't quite so amazing after all. It's not quite what they expected. Things like this person who thought they were buying a swing to put in their garden for their grandchild, but it turned out to be for a doll's house. Or this person who thought they had an amazing deal on a beautiful leather chair, but it turned out it wasn't actually quite designed for them. Or this lovely, caring cat owner who thought, I'm going to treat my cat to a nice scratching post, and it turned out to be some sort of micro cat. Sometimes things arrive and they're not quite what is expected. Sometimes it happens in the inverse. This person who thought, I'll buy my dog a nice bone, thinking all bones must be the same size, transpires they're not, and they've got a tiny dog. Or, or this person who won't be needing to buy toilet paper for quite a long time. Sometimes when things arrive, they're not quite as expected. When Jesus arrived, he wasn't quite what was expected. He was the Christ, but he was an unexpected Christ. And we see this particularly in Mark 8. Mark's gospel is one of the accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection in the New Testament, where we're looking over this season to see who Jesus is. And up to this point in Mark, the book, uh, the author has been revealing who Jesus is through his actions and through his words and the different reactions to Jesus have been shown to us. People wondering who he is, who is this guy, how does he do this stuff, why is he saying these things? But up until this point in the story, no one has yet correctly identified Jesus. No human in this story has yet realized who Jesus really is. And today, Mark 8, we reach the point where someone does. A real turning point in the story. Point at which Jesus will start his journey to Jerusalem to fulfill the mission he's come to live out. So let's read what Mark tells us, starting in verse 27 of Mark 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus and the disciples are traveling to Caesarea Philippi, it's up in the north, and he asks them this question about who people are saying he is. Who is Jesus, remember, is the question at the heart of this gospel, just as the question at the heart of all of the gospels in the New Testament. And first he says, well, what are the crowds saying? What's the word on the street? What are you hearing amongst the people? And they say, well, people are saying you're John the Baptist, or you're Elijah, or you're another of the prophets. Basically, you're a messenger from God, an important person, a special person, but just a messenger from God. He says, okay, that's what they think, but what do you think? Talking to his 12 closest friends, his closest followers, and Peter steps up as their representative, and he says, you, you are the Christ. And this is a huge moment in this story. It's the first point in Mark's gospel that any human has said that Jesus is the Christ. We've known this from verse 1. And you remember a few weeks ago, we saw that in the baptism of Jesus, his anointing by the Spirit, we saw a picture of him being the Christ. And demons have recognized that Jesus is the Christ. No human until this point in this book has recognized that Jesus is the Christ. This is a big moment. Raises the question for us, of course, of what does it mean? You're the Christ. Well, what's that going on about? This is about a promise from the Old Testament of a hoped for and a promised king, a king who would fulfill God's mission. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find God has a mission, he has a plan, he has a desire to undo all the damage that sin or rebellion against God has done to the world that we live in. And so he calls a nation through whom he's going to bring blessing to the whole earth. He's going to undo all the damage of sin. The nation of Israel called to that, but they, because they, like we, were sinful humans, are unable to fulfill the mission, unable to play their part that God calls them to. And so the Old Testament ends on a pretty negative note, a pretty low note, and a big problem. God's promised to do this thing, we're still waiting for it to happen, and it seems sinful humans can't actually play our part and make it happen. And so in this context, there emerges this hope and this promise from God of a king who will come, a king who will be unlike any other king who really will fulfill that mission, really will solve the problem of sin. He'll regather God's people together. He'll get rid of the foreign nations who were oppressing them at the time. He'll deal with sin and he'll put all things to right. And that promised king became known as the anointed one because in the Old Testament, kings were anointed with oil. An anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah, or in Greek is Christ. The Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised king who would come and save and would come and deliver. Peter is saying, you're the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one we've been longing for. You're the one who's promised. You're the one who's going to fulfill all of God's promises and complete God's mission. This is of huge significance. This moment is a big moment, an exciting moment, And so you might think as you read the story that Jesus puts a bit of a downer on it, frankly. You're the Christ. Someone finally has realized this is the guy God promised. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It's a bit of a downer. What's he doing? Finally, the Christ has come. Surely we should want people to know. Surely Jesus was going, tell everyone, you've got it. Finally, tell everyone who I am. Doesn't Jesus want people to know this? Isn't this good news? Isn't this to be shared? What's going on? I think what follows 
helps explain what's going on. The reason Jesus says you're to be quiet, and actually in brackets is for now, because we know later that changes, is because he was the Christ, but he was an unexpected Christ. They've realized who Jesus really is, but now he needs to unpack that for them. He needs to explain it. He needs to define it for them. And that's why Mark says at this point, Jesus began to teach them. He begins to say some stuff. He's saying some new stuff. He's now got the opportunity to, as it were, fill in the blanks and explain what it really means for him to be the Christ. He reveals that he is the Christ, but he's not the Christ as expected. You see, at the time of Jesus, among the Jewish people, there were various different ideas about what the Christ would be like. But the predominant idea was that he would come as a violent warrior. This king would be a violent warrior who would come and would push out the foreign rulers, the Romans it was at the time, who were ruling over God's people, and would restore God's people and rule over them as a free nation. And we know that. We've got stuff that Jews are writing around the time of Jesus that shows that. One example comes from the Psalms of Solomon. So this is written about 60 years before Jesus was born, not part of the Old Testament, okay, important to realize that. This is Jews who were reading the Old Testament, thinking on what God had said, thinking on the promises God had made, and this is what they thought they were waiting for. See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem of Gentiles who trample her to destruction in wisdom and in righteousness, to drive out the sinners from their inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. This is what people are expecting. A violent warrior messiah, a warrior king who would come and lead basically a battle. And we know there were lots of people around the time of Jesus who claimed to be that kind of person, some mentioned in the Bible. In Acts, you get mention of these people who come as these violent warrior kings. You get, in Acts 5, mentioning Theodas and Judas the Galilean who lead rebellions. In Acts 21, Paul the Apostle is accused of being an Egyptian who led a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Everyone was expecting this violent warrior to come, and some people were claiming to be him. But as Jesus begins to explain what it means for him to be the Christ, for him to be the promised one, that's not actually what he looks like. He begins to teach them what his mission is, and he says the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is a really radical thing for Jesus to say. This doesn't make him sound like the Christ. This makes him sound like a failed Christ, like a a Christ pretender. The Christ surely should be accepted by the religious leaders. The Christ surely should be the one doing the killing, not getting killed. The disciples had kind of no mental box to put this in, no way of processing or understanding what Jesus was saying. This was so far away from every expectation they had. So much so that actually in the story we see, they think he's got it wrong. Or maybe he's kind of losing his confidence in his ability to live out this mission. He needs a bit of encouragement and a reminder of what it means for him to be the Christ. And so Peter quietly takes Jesus away, rebukes him, reminds him what it actually means for him to be the Christ. The Christ surely is a winner, not a loser. The Christ is a warrior, he's the killer, not the killed. But it's not Jesus who's mistaken. Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he's come to do. He knows what it means for him to truly be the Christ. And so he turns, making sure he's got the attention of all the disciples to Peter 
And he says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he's saying the disciples are thinking in earthly ways, in human ways, in the ways of man. Their vision of what the Christ would be like, of how to deal with the problems they're facing, was a human vision. It's the vision of how sinful humans automatically want so often to deal with things. Jesus' way is the way of God. The way of the good, holy, perfect creator God. That's why he calls Peter Satan. He's not literally saying that Peter is Satan, but Peter is representing the viewpoint of Satan by seeking to draw Jesus away from his true mission and do things in the way of sinful humans, not in the way of the holy God. But Jesus is revealing what the true Christ is like. Jesus is revealing that the true Christ was not a violent warrior, but a suffering saviour. He's not going to come with brute force to kill others. He's going to be one who's on the receiving end of brute force. He's not going to take the lives of other people. He's going to lay down his own life for other people. He's not going to shed blood. He's going to allow his own blood to be shed Jesus, as the Christ, is going to be a suffering saviour. And just think of what kind of a king that is. Think of what a beautiful king that is. A, a ruler who doesn't throw their weight around, who doesn't use their force against other people, doesn't come with violence and hatred, doesn't make others pay the price, but a ruler who uses their authority to serve others, to love others, who pays the price that others should pay. What a beautiful king. And what a contrast to the ways of man so often, as we see even in the world today. The ways of man, apart from God, are the opposite. Are to throw our weight around, to use violence and hatred to make others pay a great price. The ways of man are ugly and evil. The ways of God are beautiful and life-giving. Jesus is wonderful. He's not like human rulers. He follows the things of God that are not like the things of man. A few chapters later in this gospel, Jesus will summarize it. Even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to serve, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is what Jesus is really like. This is what God is really like. A God who comes not to be served, but to serve, to give himself for the sake of others. When Jesus comes as the Christ, he wasn't as expected. But unlike those shopping, online shopping disasters, Jesus was even better than expected. He was more beautiful, more wonderful, more glorious. Jesus is the unexpected Christ. We might then ask, well then, what does that mean for us? What's the response to us? If Jesus is the unexpected Christ, how does that impact us? Well, actually, Jesus goes on to explain that in Mark 8. If Jesus is the unexpected Christ, we are called to an unexpected discipleship, an unexpected following. Here again, we have Jesus fleshing out something he's already said. Throughout the gospel so far, he's been telling people and calling people to follow him, and now he begins to explain to us in more detail what that actually means, what that actually looks like. Followers of the unexpected Christ following unexpected discipleship. Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus means following the pattern of his mission. Following him on the same path, following him on the same way, laying down our lives just as Jesus has laid down his life for us. 
To follow Jesus means we deny ourselves and take up our cross. That means we give up control of our lives to him. We're choosing not just to follow our desires, choosing not just to follow what our culture or the world around us tells us is good or is going to do us good. We choose instead to follow Jesus on the path of sacrifice, to follow him on the path of suffering. And it's hard to overstate how shocking the idea of taking up your cross would have been in the context Jesus is talking what he's talking about there is carrying the crossbeam of a cross used in a Roman execution and carrying it to the place of execution. We'll see that happen, of course, later in the gospel. The crucifixion in the ancient world was the worst, most gruesome and horrific form of execution there was, save for the worst of uh, criminals in that context. We put it in terms of our day, something like Jesus saying, you're to carry your lethal injection to the execution chamber. Or him saying you're to carry the blade of the guillotine to the place of execution. This is meant to be shocking. And it's meant to make us uncomfortable. Because Jesus is pointing out, very often the Christian life will feel uncomfortable. The Christian life is one of self-denial. We deny ourselves what we think we want or what we feel is going to be good for us, what our hearts seem to desire. We deny ourselves what our culture is constantly telling us is the route to happiness or is the way to our best life because we're following Jesus and we're trusting him, not ourselves and not the world around us. And if it sounds painful, what Jesus is saying, I think we're understanding it right. He's deliberately using painful language just as carrying a cross would be painful. So the question, of course, arises, well, why would anyone do it? If following Jesus is so unpleasant, can be so painful, so difficult, or the cost is so high, why on earth would you choose to do that? Why even contemplate following Jesus? Jesus gives us the answer. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Jesus saying we do it because it's worth it. In the counterintuitive, back-to-front economy of God, actually, it's worth it because as we lay down our life to him, we gain real life. And if we try and hold on to our life here, actually, ultimately, we lose true life. If we try to save our life by keeping it comfortable, by living how we want, by following our desires, by going with the flow of the world around us, actually, although we seem to be gaining our life or saving our life and our comfort, ultimately, we lose life because true life, True life is to know God and to be in relationship with him now and for eternity. But if we're willing to lose our life now, willing to lay down our right to comfort and ease and the things we might want, if we lose our life now, we save our life then because we get true life through that. We have life in relationship with God now and in eternity. It's because of following the pattern of Jesus. Jesus shows us that the pattern is death through death into life. That's the pattern that Jesus will enact later in this gospel. Through death comes true life. That's what Jesus does. We're called to follow him on the same pattern. He further explains, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He's saying, what's the point in having the best of everything here? What's the point in having everything the world wants? What's the point in having everything you think your heart wants? If actually, in the end, it's going to forfeit your soul. You're never really going to find soul satisfaction because you're separated from the God who made you and loved you, separated now, separated in eternity. These are strong words. These are harsh words. This is Jesus being really frank with us. 
But he's being frank with us because he loves us. This is radical candor. This is God wanting us to know really actually what the roots of fullness of life is and for us to be able to experience that. And just notice how incredibly countercultural this is compared to the culture that we live in today. A culture that says, be true to your desires. You do you. Be yourself. And this Jesus comes and says, deny yourself. The message of Jesus is basically the opposite of the culture in which we are living today. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow. Following the unexpected Christ means an unexpected discipleship, but that leads to life. And what does that look like in practice for us today in 2022? It means lots of things. Every area of life will be impacted by this call to uh, follow Jesus, denying ourselves, taking up our cross. It means that we as followers of Jesus should stick out. We should be different. We should look different to those around us. We deny our desire for comfort in order to be obedient to Jesus. Lots of areas that would hit, but just a few we can highlight. It means rejecting the temptations of consumerism and materialism that are so rampant in our society. Rejecting the belief that we deserve to have lots of stuff and that lots of stuff will make us happy. It means instead choosing to live in radical simplicity. Choosing instead to live in radical generosity. It means rejecting the temptation of comfort, the idea that we deserve a comfortable life. We deserve an easy life and instead living a life of radical self-sacrifice and service to others. Giving of our time, giving of our money, sometimes moving to other places or letting people live with us or choosing to love someone in action time and time and time again, even though they never seem to give anything back to us. That's what it means sometimes to uh, deny ourselves to take up our cross. It means rejecting the temptations of a sexualized culture. For those of us who are single, it means choosing not to engage in sexual activity. For those of us who are same-sex attracted, it means choosing not to enter into a same-sex relationship. For those of us who are married, it means choosing to be faithful to our spouse until separated by death. These are the kind of things it means to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to follow Jesus. There are many, many more examples of what it means to be a radical follower of Jesus, walking on that path, knowing that even though it looks like death, actually is the path to true, true life, just as Jesus' journey through death led him to true life. Jesus is the Christ. He's the unexpected Christ. He is the suffering saviour. He goes through death to bring life, and we as his followers are called to follow in an unexpected discipleship, going through a living death to experience true, true life. May the band come up at this point, please. So I guess the obvious challenge for us as we reflect on Jesus' words here is, are we doing this? If Jesus is the unexpected Christ, we are called to follow him in this unexpected way, and it's going to be worth it. Losing our life actually will be the way we gain our life. So the question for us is, are we prepared to do that and are we doing that? Are we prepared to count the cost of following Jesus? To deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him? And where is it that today, even right now, God is speaking to us as individuals about how we do that? About the areas in which we specifically need to do that? Maybe some of those things I've mentioned of materialism, consumerism, uh, the gods of comfort, gods of sex in our culture, maybe they're areas in which God is calling you to radically follow him. Maybe for you it's something else that even right now the Holy Spirit is highlighting to you. 
Maybe you're here today, actually, you've never responded to this Jesus. You've never responded to Jesus as the Christ. Friend, you can choose to do that today. I can't promise you that following Jesus is going to be easy. Actually, basically, I can promise you it won't be easy, but I can also promise you it's the route to true, true life. Jesus is the Christ, the one who died and now is living. He's calling you to live a living death so that you might experience true life with him. If that's you and you want to respond to Jesus today, you can do that in your own heart and your own words as we worship and we take bread and wine in just a moment. But don't leave this place without the opportunity, taking the opportunity to talk to someone to find out more if you want to, to pray with them. We're going to worship and Samuel Claire will lead us in uh, bread and wine in a few moments. This is a chance for us to come and to worship Jesus as the Christ and a chance for us to commit our hearts to him again and to listen to him as he speaks to us about the ways in which it means for us to live out this radical discipleship. Let's pray and the band will lead us. Jesus, we recognize and acknowledge you as the Christ, the promised king, but as the wonderful, gloriously unexpected Christ, the one who comes as a suffering saviour, the most beautiful king who comes not to be served, but to serve, comes not to throw his weight around, but to lay down his life for us. Jesus, in response to who you are, we want to lay down our lives in radical obedience in this unexpected discipleship. We want to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to faithfully follow you. And we willingly surrender ourselves to you afresh. We ask would you empower us by your spirit for that walk. We ask even now as we come before you, would you be speaking to us, challenging us, convicting us, encouraging us, Lord, in the ways in which we can do that. Come on, moving us with praise, Spirit of God.